we did a ton of customer development on the enterprise side. And what we found was people want to access talent. They don't want to buy or custody crypto. That's just too much friction for them to adopt a new platform. So we knew that we needed to build something that didn't require a bunch of behavior change on the enterprise side, but enabled them to essentially use a decentralized network. We were going after essentially building a protocol for internet labor, which meant that you know the design decisions that needed to be made here were, were quite different than the decisions you might make for whatever, building an NFT or DeFi or something like that. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Okay, welcome back to uh, this next episode of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. We had this amazing conversation with Gabe Lunau Staseski, who is the co-founder of Braintrust. Uh, so Braintrust is the first user-controlled talent network that provides uh, highly skilled technical and design talent to enterprises. Uh, so this was extremely informative and interesting to hear about Gabe and all his experience in building marketplaces and basically how they are now creating this talent network that really is what you would say like the best fit with the future that you could imagine, let's say, in, in the evolution of marketplaces. So really interesting episode. Yes, of course. The, the most interesting thing in this conversation is, is talking to an experienced founder, the, as you said, that uh, has been building marketplaces in Web 2.0 for, for ages. Uh, you mentioned 50. And basically, you, you know, you can see how uh, at Braintrust, they're not just using uh, crypto for crypto's sake. So uh, they show how, you know, using crypto, you can uh, drop, uh, fees uh, to almost zero, making a new whole uh, type of transactions uh, happen, you know, much broader, much bigger transactions. He mentioned that uh, I think the average uh, project at, at Braintrust is 70K, which is much bigger than 1K or seven, 700 euros or something like that, that, that it normally happens on traditional talent uh, networks. He spoke about how you can scale through incentives and referrals, uh, giving people skin in the game by getting them to receive these tokens that they can monetize or they can use for governance. Uh, and he spoke uh, about this idea of uh, uh, staking uh, being a new primitive of building trust in Web3 uh, marketplaces. So this idea that uh, for example, when you post a job on, on Brain Trust, you can stake some tokens to signal that uh, you're serious about the job. So that's really, really interesting. And I mean, you get a glimpse of uh, how they are using Web3 uh, without making things unnecessarily complicated. And so they have been able to onboard Fortune uh, 1000 companies, uh, which normally don't want to deal with wallets and all these you know, MetaMask uh, things and 
And so it's really, really interesting. And and also, of course, uh, I think for, for the listeners, it will be uh, very interesting to dive deep into the institutional complexity of building such things. So, uh, you know, Brain Trust is managed by a non-profit and has six uh, service providers that receive funds to, you know, to basically move things forward in terms of communication and software development. But uh, it delivers a lot of choices uh, to the community, you know, through the off-chain and on-chain votes and uh, that they can participate. Uh, they, I mean, the participants in the community uh, by using the, by leveraging the, their uh, brain trust tokens. Um, I, I mean, for me, it was really interesting to see how he calls it the network. He never calls it the company. And uh, another really interesting thing is, uh, you know, since they bootstrap it basically with a safety uh, fundraising process, which is a safe uh, uh, by, but, you know, using tokens instead of shares. And, uh, um, you know, this way then that basically the company gets valorized, accrues value in a token. Uh, that gets uh, listed on 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 uh, crypto exchanges. Uh, it's a completely new way to to valorize an early stage company like that. So I mean, for me, it was really one of the most amazing conversations we ever had on the podcast. It's probably on my podium. So thank thank you so much, uh, Stina, for co-hosting that with me and and uh, our listeners. I'm I'm sure you're gonna be excited about this. Yeah, and you can, of course, find everything as usual at uh, our podcast um, page. So you go to boundaryless.io slash podcast slash brain trust. And here you can find the full transcript and all the, the links. But uh, yeah, really impressive journey and uh, enjoy this interview with Gabe. Yeah, just a last minute uh, point. Uh, brain trust just raised $100 million in a token sale to fuel community-led innovations. So please look at their grants. There are so, so many grants that you can apply to and that's going to be a very interesting opportunity for everybody. Have a great episode. Hello, everybody. Okay, let's come back to the Boundaries Conversations podcast. Tonight uh, with me, I have my usual co-host, Sina Hekila. Hello, everybody. And uh, with us, we have Gabe Luna Ostaseski. I hope I, I said it well, Gabe. Yes, yes, perfect. Wonderful to be here. Acceptably well, I hope. And and so, uh, I mean, let me just uh, reinforce that we are so excited to have you here. Uh, Gabe is among the founders and the leaders of this project called Brain Trust, uh, which is one of the few, I would say, really exciting projects we are seeing now nowadays. Uh, one of the few that are really uh, transcending the usual and, and making more tangible also all this uh, uh, chatting about the Web3 that is happening. So, Gabe, maybe most of all, uh, I think uh, we should start from you giving a quick introduction from uh, uh, your experience in explaining and communicating this project uh, in a way that our listeners can understand the basics so that we can really dive deep into the uh, most advanced uh, thinking that is behind this project. Sure. So Braintrust is a decentralized talent network that is owned and governed by a community of people around the world. And so if you contrast that with you know, traditional Web 2, which I've spent my entire career building, those are typically highly centralized organizations that are owned and governed by their investors and where the users typically have no voice, no power, and, and really no ownership in the network. So it's this, uh, I would say, big transition from the old way to the new way. Happy to unpack it with you. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm really, really interested in, in uh, letting also our listeners understand uh, 
the steps that led to creating Brain Trust as it is today? What is the organizational structure that, uh, you know, basically governs this project, runs it, runs its strategy and interacts with this amazing community that you have created? I know you have a, a no-profit. I know you uh, are collected money originally through an SFT process. And, and so I'm really interested in, you know, again, uh, unpacking a bit the comp- institutional complexity that you built. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the way to think about it is that the association that that essentially governs the, the Brain Trust Protocol is, is a non-profit entity. Um, it's not intended to make profit. It's, it's essentially as a shepherd or as a, as a way to govern the, the protocol. There are many for-profit entities that operate on top of the Brain Trust protocol and, and platform. You know, a great analog for this would be like the Ethereum Foundation, right? There's many, many for-profit entities that that build on top of Ethereum, um, but the Ethereum Foundation um, is essentially a nonprofit. We follow a very similar path and a, a similar structure as uh, as Ethereum. You know, I guess the nonprofit is the one that essentially is connected with the token that you that you raise, right? That you created, that you are uh, minted uh, partially. You know, and and uh, the question is really, for example, I know that there are six players that are running this company. So I'm interested in understanding a bit more of what is their role versus maybe uh, especially in the relationship with uh, uh, running the communication and, and, you know, all this uh, uh, process that is not on chain, let's say. Yeah, great question. So the, the when we first started, the, essentially the, the primary developer of, of the Brain Trust Protocol was Freelance Labs, and it remains essentially one of the nodes. And now there are six nodes providing a variety of, of different functions and, and development capacities for the Brain Trust Network. So there's six total networks, and they provide a variety of activities ranging from like actual blockchain development to community development and then enterprise development. Um, so currently there's six different uh, companies that actually are, are nodes and are helping to build out the Brain Trust Network. And that's super interesting. I mean, especially thinking about you and your story. You know, I've been listening to this a uh, few times uh, and your story as an investor and this way that you went through raising money through this uh, uh, safety process, which is essentially a, a safe version, but uh, uh, related to releasing tokens, right? So it's... Uh, Maybe you can unpack a bit this aspect also, and the role of the token, I would say, for, for our for our listeners as well. Yeah, so the, the mechanics in Silicon Valley, a, a common instrument that, that people are use, using to raise capital is, a, is called a, a safe. And y Combinator came up with this structure. It's very similar to a convertible note. The, the difference is like there's not a there's not typically a, a confined time frame that, um, or a interest rate that's associated with it. Those, those are kind of like the, the core differences between a safe and a convertible note. And then with the advent of, of token projects, you know, a new instrument was created, which is essentially a SAF TE. And, it, and it's basically a, a derivation of a safe, but for tokens. Uh, because in, in Brain Trust, there is no equity, and nor has there ever been any, any equity. And so the early supporters were uh, essentially you know, investing. And then when the token was minted on mainnet, uh, essentially they received tokens versus you know, when, it, when a company typically goes through their other structures. Again, we're, we are not a traditional company. Um, and so the structures are quite different for a, you know, for a, for a nonprofit token project. 
Yeah, you said that you're not a traditional company. I'm very curious to see. So when you started this, like, how did you attract basically the first talents and a little bit how you did you solve the chicken egg problem? Like what came first and how did that uh, differ from what you had done with other marketplaces in the Web2 framework? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, you know, fundamentally, like marketplaces are, are there to essentially bring together supply and demand, right? And the vast majority of them fail in what's called like the bootstrap phase, which is they, they fail to basically get enough of both sides or the right amount of both sides to show up to be able to, to have essentially like, you know, network effects or liquidity between supply and demand. And so that's always like the primary challenge for any marketplace. And so when we first started this, we actually started by hand curating talent that we had worked with in the past. So we actually started with 50 talent that we had like actually built companies with in the past and had worked with in the past. So we had personally vetted. And then we actually gave each of those talent a few invites that they could then invite other talent. So we went from like 50 talent to 150 to 400 talent, basically all through this kind of referral mechanic. And that's, so that's kind of how we bootstrap the, I'll say like the, the talent side or supply side of the network. And then, then we had to, we're in the beginning, we were demand constrained, right? We had to actually go out and, and bring on companies that were looking to hire. And, and frankly, this was really difficult when we first started for a couple different reasons. Number one, you have to remember like whatever, even just a couple of years ago, the idea of like remote work was still an idea. It was people were writing blog articles about it, but global enterprises like were wanted like butts and seats. Mm-hmm. And so we would go and talk to companies and they'd say, you know, like, yeah, this seems interesting. We know we need to like hire remote people and freelancers, but like, you know, we're really not set up to do it. So they would like kind of dip their toes in the water. And, and it was a slog, right? Like we had to talk to a lot of companies. Fortunately, we were able to get a, a couple of big enterprises like Nestle on board in the early days. And then something just like completely shifted in June of 2020, where basically all companies became remote companies. Right. And, and that like anachronistic thinking around butts and seats was literally wiped away. And when we came out of stealth in June of 2020, we had 268 inbound enterprises in one month. Mm. And we signed up you know, some of the biggest companies in the world. And they just started growing and growing and growing and using the network. And, and that's like how the flywheel really started the turn in, in brain trust. And, and this growth, I bet uh, it's uh, something that also other platforms have seen, right? But uh, there is this, yeah, I mean, platforms with regards to freelance work. But uh, from what I see, your, your company is uh, really positioned in a, in, a, in a space that is attracting very high caliber customers, uh, probably because of the quality also of the providers, right? And uh, it seems that uh, these... Uh, uh, referral mechanism that you built that allows these people to gain uh, access to the token. It's really decisive uh, to improve the quality uh, of the of the supply and and also you know what are maybe other elements, other processes that uh, let these people that participate uh, gain skin in the game. How can they generate uh, these tokens? Uh, how can they earn uh, these tokens? Uh, maybe you can mention a few other things that differentiate essentially brain trust from the other competitors. Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, uh, if we go back, like I've spent my entire career 
building and investing in Web2 marketplaces, right? Like over 50 of them across all different industries and categories from ride sharing to healthcare and gig economy and kind of everything in between. And when, you, when you're involved in that many, you, I would say like you start to develop some pattern recognition and you also see like the dirty little secrets. And the dirty little secret of all Web2 marketplaces is that the rake, right, or the fee taken out of the middle is it kills network effects and it kills community and it kills NPS or net promoter score. And so when you extract disproportionate rent or value from your users, they start to hate you. <laughs> and you can't build a long-term sustainable company when one or two sides of the network hate you. So our kind of fundamental thesis when we were starting this was on the talent side, if you dropped fees to 0%, like immediately if people were, were coming from another marketplace, they would get a 30 or 40% raise, right? So it's a very attractive economic incentive for them to do work on brain trust. And there's no incentive for them to disintermediate or go off platform, right? Because they pay a 0% rate and we insure all the payments and, you know, and the reputation is online. So that's like kind of part one on the talent side. And when you drop the fees down to 10% for the enterprises, what you enable or our, our thesis when we started, and this is really proven out, is when you drop the fees so low on the enterprise side, you enable a whole new class of transactions that frankly never have appeared on, on the traditional freelance or labor marketplaces in the past. So as an example, I think this is pretty recent. I think the numbers for the average job on Upwork what range between like $250 and $350, um, the last data that they put out. Contrast that with Brain Trust, and the average job currently um, was $76,000. And so when you drop the fees down to zero for both sides, there's no incentive for people to go off platform. And so what it enables is a whole new class of large ongoing projects with big enterprises and great talent. And so that's like the, the unlock of fee structure, right? There's this financial incentive of like why people want to come here and why people want to stay here. So that's one very kind of important part of like what I would call like the, the legs of the stool, right? But that's not everything. The, the second part is, you know, listen, when you're running your business on these platforms, you care quite a bit about things like the fee structure or the governance or the new categories or how these things operate. And you, you've seen this in Web2 marketplaces, right? Categorically, where the users, like where something changes in governance, right? They raise the fees, they change the structure on the users. And in brain trust, you know, the users actually have a vote. It's a one token, one vote system. And in order for any changes to be made to things like the fee structure, the community actually needs to vote for that to happen. Right. And so that provides a, a really strong incentive for the community to stay really involved and also to care quite a bit about the, the future and the success of the network is that governance component. And that's, again, it's a fundamental difference between kind of also web two and web three. And so when, when you package those together, you say like, well, why do people want to work here? Well, they want to work here because we have the largest and most reputable brands around the world with large ongoing jobs, and they get to actually earn B-Trust, and they get to use it to control and, and govern the network, right? So when you package all those things together, it's a you know what I would call like a 10x value proposition. 
And, and um, essentially, the, the, these people gain brain trust by, if I understand well, and you can help me out uh, if not, uh, by uh, essentially by vetting other people when they join, for example, that's one thing. Then they can referral, they can do referrals to you know for roles or for jobs. And what are the other mechanisms for for participants to for the community to gain brain trust? Yeah, so those are great callouts, right? Is that we don't spend a single penny on marketing to get companies or to get talent, right? But yet we've scaled incredibly fast, and that's due to the fact that we have a global permissionless referral system where people actually can earn one or two percent of the dollar value that that the people that they invite spend on the platform. Right. So it becomes a very strong and recurring financial incentive for people that refer more talent or refer clients. And that's that's been a huge driver for our growth over time. The, the second way is obviously people performing functions that the network needs to to grow and also stabilize. And so in a, in a labor network or talent network that that needs to have you know, curated talent, a, a lot of that job is like actually screening, vetting talent, and then actually educating and helping to do like peer-to-peer -peer reviews of profiles. And so there's these whole kind of core actions that are either education or, or like network activities, network operations that are all done by the community and people earn B-Trust for, for doing those activities as well. So the, the core concept, if you peel all these things back, is let the people actually control the network, but let them earn their control of the network by helping the network to grow. And so our, our fundamental belief is that you know, these networks should be owned and operated by the, by the people that, you know, that make their livings on the network. That's great. Last point uh, on this token, just to make it clear for the for the listeners, and then I know uh, Sina has some very interesting questions on the you know team forming and other aspects. Uh, so w one thing I, I want to clarify also is uh, these tokens, of course, give you let's say governance rights, not because we have these uh, fantastic mechanisms for off-chain discussions, but then on-chain votes. And uh, uh, so people having this uh, access to these tokens actually become part of the governance no, of the organization. But uh, there is also a more, uh, more, I would say, financial perspective. So these tokens, for example, I know that they are on, on Coinbase now. Uh, are they tradable? Can people monet? I know that you cannot buy it. Actually, you cannot buy it from brain trust of course but maybe people can trade it uh, am i right uh, yeah i mean of course like when a token is listed on an exchange anyone um, that has an account on that exchange could could purchase it right and but our our belief when we were starting this was that like people's on-ramp into crypto and especially in, in this network should be like earning it so i would say that that's been the the prime like for our core community they they've you know they joined a long time ago and they've been working on this for years and earning b trust all, all along the way So again, of course, people could buy B-Trust on, on any one of, a, one of the exchanges that it's listed. Um, and of course, they could sell B-Trust on any of those exchanges as well. And uh, it doesn't make any difference in terms of the rights that you have when, when it comes to if you earn the token or if you bought that on, on an exchange. Uh, no, I mean, you, you have to hold tokens in your wallet. It's a one token, one vote system. 
And so you have to hold tokens in your wallet, obviously, to participate in governance, to propose new things, and also to to cast your votes. So, so if I if I buy the token from from one of these developers, for example, that are working in the community, can I then have access to the governance, even if I'm not actually part of the community? That that was my question. Sorry for not making it clear. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a, it is a one token, one vote system. That's great. So it's a kind of a tradable re- reputation, if you want. Uh, Stina, I know that you have any uh, other questions or more more about the mechanics that that you see happening on the platform. Yeah, I was curious to see um, understand a bit about those um, providers, basically the freelancers. Do you see that they also uh, join up forces? You know, people with complementary skills. Do they uh, provide sort of a suite of services, or or is it really more like individual? And how would that work? Do you, I mean? Do you also see that you have some teams that maybe st- stick around? Uh, for some time, maybe they also somehow uh, navigate towards the same decisions in the governance, or if you see what I'm getting at there, it's the, that's kind of dynamic. In- yeah, absolutely. So I think when we were originally doing this platform, our thesis was actually there was going to be a lot more like projects from companies, right? Um, so a company comes in, wants to build a, a web app, and wants to hire like a full stack team or a squad to attack that project. Our experience has been so far, it's more actually like individuals being hired and plugged into companies' existing squads. Um, We do have essentially like an agency functionality uh, where people can form agencies on the platform and either operate as an individual or operate as as essentially like an agency on the platform to tackle a project. So both that functionality exists uh, for the for the talent to either operate individually or you know as part of a team. Um, I think your second question was around like you know are there are there people that have a, you know similar interests that participate in governance in in kind of like pods or interests, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what we've seen there, there's about ten proposals um, that have happened in the last I think four or five weeks um, that have happened in governance and and. And many of those things have passed. It's really interesting. You can actually see all this on snapshot.org. You can see all the the kind of the history of these proposals. So, you know, I think it's actually a little too early to call that one. Like, ask me again after we've had 100 proposals. So far, what we see is there's basically collaboration across what I would call trades, right? So you see like engineers and designers proposing something, and then both of them kind of having different perspectives about things like, bid staking or job staking or public roadmaps, things like that. So it's it's actually really nice because you get this kind of cross-functional um, expertise um, and perspectives. I'm very curious about one, one thing. So if I think about uh, governance happening through these kind of democratic proposals, uh, it feels slow no, in, in terms of uh, the, the typical uh, move fast and break things uh, that uh, that we, we got told uh, is the rule of, uh, of Silicon Valley. So I'm, the question that I have is more about what is the interplay between the community and the, and the tokens and the blockchain elements, the Web3 elements, and the Comp, let's say the, the partners, because there's no company, <laughs> and the Web2 and the actual process of innovating, for example, the user experience or taking even maybe minor decisions about the strategy and, and the execution of the organization. Who motivates these six partners to take over to these roles? Is it just the value that accrues in the token as a promise of you know selling it tomorrow how do you see that uh, that uh, unfolding? Yeah, I mean, one of the great things is that, you know, these teams, these kind of like six core teams have been 
have been working together and building this network for years. And so there's a ton of collaboration across those teams. And also like they have both different expertise, but they're aligned around very similar things, which is growing GSV or gross services volume, which is basically that the revenue in the network, because that means that more and more people are getting hired and more and more companies are hiring. And that's essentially kind of the North star for the network. And so, you know, many, many of those decisions don't need to be on-chain decisions, right? They can be things like, you know, core user flows, things like that, that are, you know, product decisions that those teams need to be able to move super fast on. And then there's like what I would call governance decisions, right? Things like fee structure, things like new categories, things that are, are more governance related or, or like up and coming when we do grants programs, things like that, right. where the community needs to be involved and, and needs to like vote and govern those things. So I think I, I personally think that, you know, my observation of investing and, and operating in the space for many years is that like, I think too many Web3 projects try to do everything all at once and, and actually too early. Um, you know, there's a great, great article, I think, that uh, that A16 wrote about, called, I think it's the path to progressive decentralization. Right, of course. Of course, that's that's a massive. And it's funny, like, bef- you know, before they wrote that article, that was our thesis, right? Was basically that, like, you have to first build a functioning and high value network that delivers value to the participants. And then you progressively decentralize more and more attributes and push more and more activities on chain over time. And that is how you build like a sustainable and enduring project. Because, you know, when you're first starting, you need a point of view, you need a perspective and you need to like actually move fast um, in those early days. And then as the network reaches maturity, you push more and more things on, on chain. And so like we, that seemed crazy a couple of years ago, but it's proven, you know, uh, in, in the growth of our network and the sustainability of the project, that that path has been the right one. Uh, for our particular project. Now, something like DeFi is quite different, right? Like everything needs to be on chain in the beginning, but in a, in a labor marketplace or a talent marketplace, that's just not the case. So the, every project is a little different, has different fundamentals and needs differing levels of, of like, uh, I'll say like things, everything being on chain or everything being off chain. It's not, it's not a yes or no answer. It's really project dependent. No, but yes, I mean, I, I totally understand this and it's super exciting. And uh, we have this idea, we wrote about this a few few weeks ago on our blog, of out-cooperating the competition, right? So it sounds like you, you're kind of building this as the network would. So it's really a way to embody the full expectations of the ecosystem of players that uh, are interested in this space and in a way to essentially create a very solid last mover on the market because that's basically there is a much more uh, positive, I would say, I don't know how to explain in English, but, uh, you know, the case for a, uh, for joining is much, you know, it's disproportionately better than the case for competing because, you know, how can you compete uh, with something that the network itself is designing? So I think you're totally right. My question was more about uh, your motivation as an investor. You know, it's like, uh, it means, it seems that technology is making a new investment thesis kind of possible and at the same time inevitable and you are so smart that as an investor i mean that you're already into this and you're already embracing this wholeheartedly maybe some others are more slow you know and they want to protect more a different uh, different mechanism of monetization that are much more you know 
you know, in line with the things that you have been talking about at the, the start, as as, as wrong and as uh, and as not dysfunctional. Yeah, yeah. You know, with each iteration or shift of the web, like there was some fundamental shift both in the technology that enabled the new business model. And I think we're witnessing that right now. So like if we if we go back in history, we kind of look at like web 1.0, like it was it was incredible. The the innovation was being able to essentially connect people around the world that did not know each other before, right? Like that was an incredible innovation. And then came along, I'll say like web 2.0 and and like in my experience, I think the innovation there was like payments, right? Trust mechanisms, right? Like escrow services, things like that. And then the the advent of the mobile phone. And that created this explosion of new businesses. And, and for me, I looked at that like the explosion of marketplace business models that essentially brought people together that didn't know each other, didn't trust each other from, from either locally or all around the world to be able to transact in a trusted way. And that those businesses have been the most dominant of the last 20 years. And the the business model, especially in those market and web two marketplaces, was basically provide the, those additional services of payments and trust. And then the business model is extract the maximum amount of fees from the transaction as possible and consolidate that into the enterprise value for the for the for the investors that are on the cap table, right? And that that model frankly has worked really well. And then you have to ask yourself the question which is like what's the what's the new technology that enables a new business model that's happening right now and and my fundamental belief is that the the new technology is is blockchain and and obviously smart contracts and tokenization. And what that enables is a new business model, which is dropping fees to as low as possible and distributing ownership and control as wide as possible. And I think what that enables is is new categories of networks and marketplaces to be created and also a a whole new section of transactions that typically never touched these marketplaces before because of the fee structure or because... You know, people didn't want to participate in those networks because they feel like they were being extracted upon. And so I think it's like never been a more exciting time in, in history for people to be working on this space. Uh, that's that's great. I, I'm curious to, to know to know about your real impression around this kind of maximalism that, that exists sometimes around Web3 and uh, in relationship also to the hurdles that you have experienced in building something such uh, visionary but on the same time, having to entertain the problem of UX and letting people on board to this platform and not just developers, which are on their own, as you said on some podcasts, even fairly smart in terms of digital adoption of these kind of strange things. And uh, on the other side, you have companies. And you, you mentioned, for example, in a, in a podcast, uh, nobody wants to uh, own its own treasury and or or maybe doing things through wallets and and so people have you know companies have to pay actually invoices. So my my question as a as a recap is is much more it's about you know in in embedding still some of Web two into something that is definitely Web three. What do you leave there? So in terms of uh, uh, for, for sure, you have better UX, but what do you leave, you know, in terms of security, for example, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, resistance to censorship? Uh, so, for example, another thing that I had in mind is how do you polish this platform? Does somebody policy it for malicious behaviors, for example? So the typical questions that emerge from a 
purely decentralized uh, um, network versus a partially decentralized network. You know, somebody said once you cannot be partially censorship resistant, for example. <laughs> so what, what do you think about that? You know, in what do you leave there? What do you sacrifice where you compromise Web3 with Web2? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot to unpack there, right? But I would say that before we started this project, like we went through a really extensive you know, customer development process, right? We interviewed over a hundred enterprises um, and looked at, you know, the the challenges, the problems that they had, theses and hypotheses that we had, and, and really shaped a lot of our perspective before we wrote a single line of code. And so we did a ton of customer development on the enterprise side. And what we found was like, people want to access talent. They don't want to buy or custody crypto, right? And they don't want to like, install metamask to be able to hire a developer right like that's just that's too much friction for them to adopt a new platform right so so we knew that we needed to build something that didn't require a bunch of behavior change on the enterprise side but enabled them to essentially use a decentralized network and for many of these companies this is the first time that they've ever used a decentralized network right for nike and goldman sachs and for nestle like they're using a crypto network for the first time and they don't even, they, they don't have to go through all the kind of the brain damage uh, that many people do when they go through, you know, start to use one of these projects as, as I'm sure you guys have experienced. And so that, that really came from a lot of really in-depth customer development to understand where do we need to innovate and also where do we need to, I'll say like minimize the friction um, or the onboarding um, specifically on the enterprise side. And then, frankly, we did the exact same thing on the talent side. Is we really looked at it and we said, like, what are the core innovations here? This doesn't need to be crypto for crypto's sake, right? Like, a, a lot of the stuff that we were seeing at the time was, like, it was unnecessarily difficult and unnecessarily hard. And, like, marketplaces at their core are about reducing friction. And so any areas where, where you can essentially use you know, user experience or user design to reduce friction, but still get the benefits of, of you know, some of these areas of decentralization and some of the areas of governance was like our North Star. So we wanted both sides to be able to show up and actually use the network and get the value prop without having to go through the you know, the huge learning curve that that is required typically to use other crypto networks. And so that was a very, very intentional kind of design decision that we made early. And, and we felt like that's how we go and get like, that's how we onboard, you know, hundreds of the Fortune 1000 companies into crypto for their first time. And that's how we onboard tens of millions of users that are, you know, not currently crypto users right and that was that was always our, that was always our play was like going after the people that are already in crypto unless you're doing you know gaming or nfts or something like that is, is frankly like a really small market like we were going after the essentially building a protocol for internet labor which meant that you know the design decisions that needed to be made here were, were quite different than the decisions you might make for whatever building an nft or DeFi or something like that yeah, I mean, I was saying that that's great. It seems like, you know, using Web3, but in a way that essentially 
generates incentives that are functional to building great marketplaces that serve their community. So it's not about uh, an ideological adoption of uh, of a technology, uh, but at the same time, I think we have to we have to understand that there are some maybe some uh, radical properties of Web3 that you can, uh, you have only if you embrace it, if you want, in, in, in this very radical and, you know, in this very somehow post-institutional way that Web3 embeds. Uh, so maybe we yeah, are looking at, yeah, go, go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'm a core believer, right? Like, I, you know, I bought Bitcoin back in 2013. Like, I'm a believer in this technology, but I also believe that um, in order for these networks to build enduring projects, they need to deliver value to their users and they need to actually build real serious value for both sides. In, in some ways, I saw a lot of ideological projects that that floundered and never got off the ground. And so I think that it, you know, going back to our conversation around, you know, the path to progressive decentralization, I think projects have to really look at the fundamentals of their project and then decide what to do and in what order just being a you know a fundamentalist without you know building value for your for your network or building usability for your network you end up with some projects that are frankly like great blog articles but that are that no one uses I mean, that resonates a lot with me, you know, because I've been um, somehow questioning, for example, movements such as the platform co-op movements for, for its lack of uh, of tangibility, you know, and, and uh, you are here to de- demonstrate that uh, uh, some crazy revolutionary ideas in terms of ownership and distribution of value can come you know, from, from the VC space, for example, much uh, more easily maybe sometimes from, that they come from the ideologically piloted uh, spaces. I mean, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's move on on this because uh, I don't want to get into this rabbit hole. But uh, I would like to ask you for the last bits of this conversation, I know we, 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 we want to close uh, in a, you know, acceptable uh, time, uh, the, to look a bit more into the future. And I know, Stina, you have some considerations maybe that can guide us through this last bit of the conversation, right? Well, I think it's, uh, I don't know if it's really looking into the future, but I, I was sitting and thinking about this um, onboarding of large corporations. And personally, I've worked quite a lot in public institutions. And when I'm listening to this and thinking about how such institutions could engage with this kind of new way of of hiring talent, I could see so many obstacles uh, in terms of procurement processes, for instance. You know, you have to... Uh, collect your proposals. You have to to choose according to a defined set of criteria. I'm not sure if you encountered that also with large corporations, and and if you managed to hack that in some way, or if you have had any experience with public institutions. So that's that's maybe more a question in the present, but also if there is an ambition looking ahead. Yes, it's a great question, right? And I think one of the observations from doing a lot of that you know, customer development in the early days. And, and also, frankly, the fact that, you know, me and my co-founder built eight companies, many of which have dealt with, you know, the, the global fortune 1000. So we know that space quite well. And you know that like a $50 billion company is not going to onboard themselves, right? Like they need, they need some assistance to be onboarded. And so there's, you know, community functions and node functions within our network that actually help to get those enterprises onboarded. And then people earn B trust for for doing so. 
Um, and that's that's worked really, really well for us. We also have onboarded, you know, uh, organizations like NASA, who have a, I'll say, an insatiable appetite for, you know, for the engineers to help build the future of space travel. One of the interesting projects that was on Braintrust uh, a while back was, was actually building software to track shipments to the space station. So we always say, like, <laughs> if it's good enough for NASA, and if NASA is using Braintrust to to find the talent they need to literally like send shipments into space. Like, why shouldn't every enterprise be using this? Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, currently, I think we have over 100 of the Fortune 1000 companies that are that are using the Braintrust network to hire talent, ranging from, you know, big tech companies like Twitter in San Francisco to enormous CPG firms like, you know, like Nestle, you know, out in, in St. Louis and and large banks like Goldman Sachs and, and frankly, kind of everything in between. Uh, Gabe, just a, a little, you know, maybe uh, last technical question because I, I, I it went back to my mind and, and I think this is essential. So you, you spoke about referrals and onboarding as one of the mechanisms you bring trust, uh, rewards its community for, for the work in uh, tokens. Then you, you mentioned uh, vetting. We, we mentioned vetting. So I know that there is a process for people to gain brain trust by essentially validating candidates. Uh, and, and if I'm wrong, please correct me. And then I think... Uh, i think another very interesting innovation that you brought to the marketplace ecosystem that was really revolutionary to some extent is the the mechanism you're using staking to uh, improve the bid ordering system can you maybe spend just a little bit a, a few words on this because i think this is radically important yeah it's a, it's a great question so you know fundamentally like marketplace's job is is to do a couple of different things right like number one the job is is to essentially aggregate like supply and demand in a marketplace is and essentially balance the liquidity and then, you know, handle and process payments. And then I think one of the others is, is essentially provide a, a trusted place for people to transact. Right. And so there's ways in which, you know, web two marketplaces handle trust ranging from quality scores and ratings and reviews, things like that. Right. And we we do all of those things, plus like the, you know they can do background checks and things like that on the platform that that some of these large enterprises need. In addition to that, really like the this was actually proposed by someone in our community. We didn't we didn't actually propose this. Was how do we think about what's the new primitive of trust in a Web three world, right? Where people don't know, don't trust each other, and and like how do you develop new trust mechanisms and how do you innovate on that on that idea of trust? And so something that was surfaced from the community was this idea of, of essentially what's called job staking and bid staking. And so with job staking and actually um, referral staking. So I'll, I'll unpack each three because I think they're super interesting. So job staking, essentially the, the proposal that was submitted was basically that companies, when posting a job, especially if it's a high priority job, they would actually like Um, stake some B-Trust token along with their job post. And then if they did not hire, that B-Trust stake would be lost. So essentially what it does is it, it, it basically you know, provides a confidence guarantee that these people are really serious about hiring and provides a, you know, another trust mechanism for the people that are on the, on the like if you're, if you're a talent and you see that somebody's put up a stake, to hire somebody, your confidence in them hiring obviously goes up, right? So that's that's kind of like the concept of, of job staking. 
On, on the other side, obviously, like, you know, companies are now hiring engineers from all over the world. And like, how do you develop new ways to, to essentially like trust those people that you've never known, never met? And so the concept there was basically if, if you're an engineer, let's just say that it's a development project, you could actually stake some B-trust along with your bid and show up in the top of the listings. And essentially, from a, from a company standpoint, you're like, oh, wow, this, this person is staking some B-trust along with their bid. And if they don't complete the job according to spec, they could actually lose that stake. So again, it just develops another trust mechanism. And then the, the third component that was proposed was actually a referral stake, which is I'm willing to stake some of my B-Trust token that Simone is a great developer. And if he does something bad in, in the network or doesn't deliver, that I lose my stake. And so I just I think this is a, a really, really interesting area of innovation that has been surfaced by our community. And this is like how it's intended to work, which is the people in the community that run their businesses on this network have a very, you know, a high vested interest in making sure that the network delivers value for all the network participants. And so I think this was one of just a, you know, of many uh, proposals that happened in our governance system in the last four weeks. I mean, this this thing is just a fascinating, careful exercise of putting skin in the game everywhere, and, and I totally love it. So thank you so much for taking the time to share this with our community. Gabe, it was amazing to have you. Uh, uh, so last bit I would like to ask you is, anything that you feel uh, it's important to share with our community, please do. And of course, if you, can, if you want to point out, uh, of course, I mean, everybody knows that uh, where we can find brain trust, but maybe something special you want to talk about coming up or something that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, it's great. I mean, fundamentally, what, I, what I've found is like, you know, resources like this are incredible to really help people develop the frameworks and and develop some perspective on what areas of this developing space are interesting for them right it's so broad and wide it's like the the early 90s of the internet and so like you got to find find a space that you really want to go deep on right like you can't know everything at a really deep level and so my encouragement for people that are learning about this space is like you know, resources like this are incredible. And then like the next layer is like going and and participating in one of these communities, right? Whether that's, you know, being in, in governance or volunteering, whatever it may be, like that's at its core, the concept. And if people will gain a tremendous amount of experience from participating in a community, even for you know, weeks or a month, and it will really help shape their perspective, whether they're an investor or uh, you know a developer or builder, um, so that would be my that would be my advice or guidance is like participate. Uh, it's such an interesting and exciting space that like you'll I think that will accelerate people's knowledge and expertise. Right. Every every time I speak with someone doing Web three, uh, I I always get to this. You know, people telling me telling everybody participate, join the Discord. You know, it seems like a broken record, but that's important. I think it's really about getting in touch with the communities of practice, uh, pe people that are doing things. So really encourage uh, everybody to do, to do that. Thank you so much, Gabe. It was an amazing chat. Uh, so again, thank you. It was wonderful to be on. Thank you for for having me, and and thanks for the work.
work that you're doing to help educate people around, you know, Web3 and, you know, and cooperative networks and, and really the potential there. So really, it was a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for having me. Stina, thank you so much as well. Thank you. It was a great conversation. And to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bandless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.